0: What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Prachi Srivastava, Associate Professor in the area of Global Education, focusing on education and international development at Western University. Dr. Srivastava is also a member of the World Bank Expert Advisory Council on Citizen Engagement. And in addition to her research, advisory and policy work, she has been focusing on disruptions in education caused by COVID-19, and is the project lead for the COVID-19 School Dashboard, a site that reports and maps confirmed school-related cases of COVID-19. Dr. Srivastava has been asked to share her knowledge and expertise with groups and organizations like the G20, UNICEF, UNESCO, and the United Nations, and I'm so grateful to have her on the show today to share her insights with us. Well, hi Prachi. It's really nice to have you on the show today. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm fine. Good. And uh, for our listeners, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself?
1: I'm an associate professor in the area of education and global development, at uh, the Faculty of Education at the University of Western Ontario. Um, and prior to uh, this, which I've been doing work on global education for the last 20 Odd years, uh, but prior to becoming an academic, I used to work in conflict-affected emergency contexts, running um, education and psychosocial programs uh, for refugees and internally displaced people. So I have that background as well.
0: Excellent, and that and this is really why uh, we were intrigued when we uh, when we saw your bio that we had to have you on the show just because of the the perspective that you will bring to this conversation. So, um, we're heading into the school year, and uh, and this will be a new um, way, you know, students are actually going back to the school this time, and I'd like to hear from you, what do you think were the immediate impacts of the pandemic on our schools? So,
1: yes, we're hopeful. Um, right now, all the announcements indicate that in Ontario, we should be starting face-to-face instruction um, after uh, Labor Day. Some schools have already started. These are the balanced uh, calendar, modified calendar schools. Uh, a small minority have started in August. Um, and we, the the immediate, of, of course, effect of the pandemic, well, uh, of the policy response to the pandemic here in Ontario on schools was were, were extended long-term school closures. And we've had uh, 26 weeks uh, of school closures here in Ontario, which are the longest in Canada. Um, They rival the longest in terms of the average for North America and Europe. Um, And it's it's really a situation uh, that we should be really concerned about, Um, comparatively uh, compared to other provinces, but also more generally within uh, what that means for students and for households. Uh, In terms of their learning, in terms of their development, in terms of just basic socialization, uh, mental health effects, uh, and of course, having access to services, other services that schools provide. Uh, Many uh, schools uh, will provide services like meals, therapeutic, diagnostic, counseling services, especially for students with special needs or students coming from more vulnerable backgrounds. And these services are have been more disrupted during the pandemic, so it um, increases the vulnerability um, of of those students. Uh, also, if there are students that have developed new vulnerabilities uh, during the pandemic, uh, they may not have been properly assessed uh, because both access to certain services, uh, healthcare services, and Uh, Of course, school-based diagnostic services have been more interrupted over the last 18 months. So all of this, uh, these are the very immediate effects uh, of the strategy that we have used here in Ontario uh, as a pandemic. Well, the government has used. uh, We have to be clear. It's the government that makes those decisions. The government has used to uh, attempt to control uh, the pandemic uh, here. But I want to I wanna add that uh, these policy responses are really, um, you know, they're, they're concerted policy responses. It's not necessarily the natural outcome of the pandemic, what we are seeing, both in terms of the length of lockdown as well as the length of our school closures, because other provinces in Canada have instituted different mechanisms. Even if we compare with our neighbouring province of Quebec, um, they have had only 10 weeks of school closures on average since March 2020. So, and entered in January roughly around the same stage that we did. Both Quebec and Ontario had the highest cases and, you know, there was a rapid um, spread. Uh, And so, and both dense urban centres, Montreal and Toronto were really the focus of the pandemic uh, in the early uh, times. And yet the policy response uh, from January of 2021 was quite different if we look at the school uh, school closures um, responses. And then if we look to see the macro measures that were instituted in both of the uh, provinces, they were quite different as well uh, in terms of Uh, vaccination allocation, uh, curfew, for example, protecting education as an essential service. Um, And, you know, all of that uh, seems to have had a very different response at the level of policy um, in in both provinces.
0: So why do you think um, Ontario took on such a different approach from other jurisdictions? Um, Was it Preparedness, lack of preparedness, I don't want to put you in a difficult position, but what do you think drove uh, these decisions, right, to to keep kids away from uh, classrooms for 26 weeks, like you said, versus, say, uh, Quebec 10 weeks? Um, just want to see what you think.
1: Uh, I can't comment on relative preparedness of, you know, um, Ontario's system uh, compared to other systems but I can, you know, and I don't know that that was even the you know, comparatively, I can't say that that is the case, but 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 kind of uh, discreetly, if we look specifically at Ontario uh, without comparing, um, the level of preparedness was not there. Um, and there was quite a lot of, well, lack of transparency also. Uh, in terms of how decisions were being made. So we don't really have access to that information uh, on 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 how decisions were making were, were being made. And that's, you know, uh, coming from someone like myself, well, from me specifically, where I have been working on this since March twenty twenty. And I have also been a contributing author and a co-lead author to the two two, uh, education briefs that came out from the science table. So I was a co-lead for the education brief that came out in June and one of the contributing authors to the school document that came out in July um, and having access to some level of information, uh, relatively, uh, you know, uh, high level information. But the decision making from that end has been uh, somewhat we're not entirely sure how, how those decisions were made. Now, some news stories have come out. Uh, they actually came out last year, but we got I, I think there was so much other movement that it didn't get as much attention uh, and, and was floated again. Uh, there was a news story that came out that there was a, a, a what I like to call a big box consulting firm. That was drafted in to you know, develop a, a school opening plan, which cost X millions of dollars, uh, which I imagine I don't I don't have information further than what I read in the in, in, in the articles that came out, but I imagine that would have come out of a, a public budget of some sort. Um, and that that was used as a as, as a document to kind of you know, have uh, the kind of plans that we did. Uh, that is highly problematic, and, you know, my my area of research uh, has been for the last 20-odd years on the role of non-state actors, in particular, including for-profit companies in setting education policy, um, usually in low-income, low-middle-income countries, but this is a case study right here in Ontario, uh, and it's quite problematic because that kind of uh, decision-making process uh subverts the democratic process. I mean it's it's outside of the public domain when you have these kinds of actors come in and design a policy that is for a core sector uh, and poor and and for the re- I mean for the functioning of our system for 2 million students here in in in, in Ontario that is, I would say quite a problematic, um, way of of dealing with education policy, whether that is in the context of the pandemic or or not, you know, uh, I that there has been quite a lot of research done, new research done on showing the problems uh, with that. The fact that we don't have too much more information is also problematic. There was an open call last year. I don't know if the listeners would, Uh, be aware, or if they remember, the Ministry of Education issued an open call in, I think it was April of 2020, or maybe May of 2020. And they said by a a certain time at the end of May or end of June of 2020, if anyone had ideas on how to, you know, uh, respond to the pandemic, that they should submit uh, reports or whatever it is. and, And many of us did. Um, I, I submitted uh, recommendations based on work that I was doing for the for the G20 uh, in, in relation to the G20 summit last year and this year as well. But last year, based on global best practice and recommendations in terms of emergency education response um, and, you know, based on evidence and, and best practice and and a number of other groups and organizations did as well. Uh, but uh, we re- heard uh, nothing um, I at least did not hear anything, and I, from my other colleagues who have submitted uh, plans, also, I don't think they've heard uh, any, they didn't hear anything as well. So, you know, those kinds of public consultation um, processes are welcome, but the problem with that is if there's no follow up and if there isn't a real commitment to engage, if it's just a veil, or uh, used as lip service to say, "Oh, you know, we had a call," um, and and then it's just a veil to say that. You, then it's it's actually contra. Uh, it's 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 contraproductive. It it doesn't actually serve the public good or the public interest um, if those are just uh, used as veils to buffer uh, business as usual, and in the meantime. In the background, there might be other private, uh, you know, uh, consultancy firms or other, other smaller kind of consultations with a very poor group of people which are directing education response, perhaps not in the public good. Now, I don't know because I've not seen that plan. Uh, the, the consultancy plan. And I don't think anyone has. So we don't know. But that is a big problem in terms of understanding the response.
0: Right. And another thing that you raised in the beginning is uh, the whole idea that education was never deemed an essential service. Um, had it been, how do you see how things could have played out uh, during the pandemic? And then The other thing I want to ask is now also is what do you think are the long term impacts going forward with this disruption to our students?
1: Well, you know, that's a good question right around around essential service. Um, I think intuitively, intuitively, we would all recognize education and health as the two core basic essential services in society. Uh, alongside others, but those would be two of the core services. And they're certainly uh, treated that way in, in, well, they're at least framed that way in, in global public discourse and, and also in domestic public discourse, you know, education and health. Intuitively, we would we would think that. And given all of the, given that for children and young people, the two core institutions are really the family and the school. Those are the two core institutions for in their lives, in their young lives. And given the disruptions that of course families have faced, you know, economic disruptions, health disruptions, huge host of issues that families have been facing. um, You want to use the schools also as a normalizing factor. And in emergency education, when even when there is conflict one of the services that we want to protect are is education and schools and we try as as I had when I was working in conflict uh, even in the context of a refugee camp or an IDP camp you try and institute a school or an education program there for, Because they provide, in addition to the the basic skills and in addition to the more, we would say, social skills, they also provide a very central grounding, normalizing, um, uh, that is what they provide, normalizing children's life experiences. So intuitively, while we might consider them as essential services, and society in terms of the societal benefits, the economic benefits, the the, the life opportunities, social mobility benefits, the, the, the benefits to our, 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 our domestic economies, job market, you know, all of these, it's not to be, it's not to be minimized. It's not to say that that's the sole function of schools. I'm the last person to say that. But In in terms of understanding that there are benefits, you would want to protect that as a a key basic sector. Also, the fact that it affects 2 million citizens of our province and 5 million citizens of our country, over 5 million, that's the cohort of of children and young people in primary and and secondary education. So if we take it as an intuitive assumption we should really, and, and, and empirically sound, it's an empirically sound assumption also because everything I'm saying is backed by by studies that will show you the rates of return to education, will show you what that means. One extra year of schooling means this in terms of development, means this in terms of citizen engagement, in terms of particular kinds of values and all of that. So if, if, if we see that as, as, as a core function, then you'd want to protect that. Now, I... Feel well. I don't feel it's it's been my policy analysis that that has not been done, despite the recommendations of many people, including the two science briefs, are very clear that it should be protected as essential service, last to close, first to open. You know all of that. Uh, despite that, the policy responses have not in Ontario have not abided by those principles. So we don't really see that. Um, what are some of the things that we could have done? So some of the things we could have done was to be very strong on test, trace, isolate in the community, in the community to find out where those infections really are, test, trace, isolate, and be very strong on that. Early, early adopters, early winners, I would say last year. Um, especially if you take the case of New Zealand, Vietnam, South Korea, these are places that really did a very good job. That's what they did. They were very strong on test, trace, isolate a country like Vietnam has very comparatively such fewer resources as compared to Canada and a much higher population and higher population density and was able to control the pandemic. The situation now is different because of vaccine injustice, but really in that at that time was able to do. So that was one thing we could have done. The other thing we could have done differently is is be very clear about which services are going to stay open and which services are going to stay closed. And, And to be very clear about which kinds of businesses can stay open and which kinds of businesses will stay closed. Now, that doesn't mean that we close them without providing them with subsidies. So that goes alongside subsidizing certain businesses. Uh, I know Scotland did that. I know Germany did that. There are are ways of, of subsidizing so that we can have a shorter lockdown total and actually preserve our core services. The other thing we could absolutely do is to prioritize our vaccine allocation in a way that made sense that we didn't really do here in Ontario very well. So, you know, Toronto and Peel in terms of vaccine prioritization and and within Toronto and Peel, the neighborhoods and the areas that really required more vaccine coverage earlier should have been prioritized. And there are data coming out to show that that's not the case. For example, Jane and Finch. The the vaccine uh, um, coverage there was much, much lower than, for example, Forest Hill in Toronto, which is one of the highest income neighborhoods, and Jane and Fitch, which we know is one of the lowest income, not just in in Toronto, but in the province, right? So you kind of see that that was not done. Um, And the third, and perhaps we could have even had a pilot program for allocating vaccines to parents, education workers in high um uh transmission areas uh to to do that uh Quebec did that Quebec did some of those things uh, Quebec was better at allocating its vaccines to uh the two areas that had the most uh level of transmission at the time Montreal and Laval and it actually instituted a pilot program back in February uh where there was when the and I think it was the alpha variant uh was 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 dominant in three boroughs in Montreal to all parents of any child in daycare all the way through secondary schooling for vaccine prioritization to try and keep the schools open. It also instituted curfew. It it was a little bit, it was stronger on test, trace, isolate in schools. So those those are some of the measures that we could have done if really what we wanted to do was to keep schools open in addition to school level mitigation. But listeners need to understand. At the level of of controlling the virus, really the community level measures is are, are key. That is what drives the transmission. That is what we're seeing from the studies that are coming out. And at the level of the institution or the organization, um, it really is an attempt at keeping it at bay, but also tracing when that happens, right? So, you want to have the string, the most stringent measures that you can at the school level, but that's only going to work in, in, in as much as you're able to control the community-level virus uh, transmission. So those community-level measures become really important. And then, of course, the school-level measures. On school-level measures, we didn't do a few very important things that we should have done. Number one, reduction of class sizes. This became a very political issue, and I don't understand why, because it is the number one public health measure. For COVID, we kept saying for every single sector, every single interaction, reduce your interactions, reduce your human contact. So, of course, in a school, how do we do that? You look at the number of children in a cohort, in a class, and you want to reduce that as much as you can, right? So uh, countries that opened their schools early last year, like Denmark in, in April, the end of April 2020, that was one strong measure that they implemented alongside outdoor education. You have to remember Denmark has a similar weather climate to to a lot of parts of Canada. And they used that smaller class sizes, outdoor education model as much as they could up until the end of June or July, it was. And then when they returned and they had controlled the community level transmission, they returned to a more standard class size. But, you know, we never did that here. Uh, ventilation measures. Some were implemented, some weren't, some are being implemented now, some aren't. It's it's a little bit unclear in terms of how long it's going to take to implement those. Um, we didn't do those two very basic things. Um, and of course, now we're in a situation where I think there's a mandate, there will be, or it has just been announced or will be announced, that there will be a mandate for vaccinations for education workers, but but there's, it, they should have been prioritized in the very first group. Of, of people getting them alongside the, the most vulnerable. Um, I think, you know, when it started getting, uh, uh, when the vaccine started being delivered to, out, you know, outside of that very most vulnerable group, then really education workers
0: alongside healthcare workers should have been prioritized for the vaccine. Right. And, okay. So, Yep, you are you've noticed what's happened with this whole disruption and uh, and you're obse- and comparing how Ontario handled things and what other areas around the world how they've responded to you know really um, ensuring that the kids were back in school ensuring that they had um, provided the supports and the structure in order to you know adapt in, in the changing environment and um, but now, what do you see going forward? Like you mentioned, um, they're going back to school. You know, there's some of these uh, ventilations that they're talking about that they're going to be doing. But what would you really like to see that Ontario does uh, going forward that could actually repair some of the, you know, the damage that it's done in lost time, in, in classroom time for these students?
1: Well, you know, that's that's a really good question because, <clears throat> You know, sadly, I mean, not sadly, it's, it's hard to say. Um, we've had a lot of focus, even though perhaps the government hasn't implemented some of the many of the measures that are mentioned here that I mentioned here today and others have also been mentioning. The public discourse around those measures has been uh, dis- discussed quite strongly, you know, about the safe September, for example. That's been going on since last year, since uh, 2020, September. Um, and th- the part that's been missing, well, in-, in one way, it's almost hijacked the whole conversation around schooling and education. Uh, because the actual curricular and pedagogical reforms that are needed, which is really the stuff of education, right? The stuff of education goes beyond the school building. We are still stuck on the school building. The fact that we can't even get the school building stuff, uh, (laughs) you know, in in a situation where where it is sufficient should be shocking to everyone because we're now entering a third year, a potential third year of disruption for schooling and the third academic year of disrupted education. But we've been talking primarily of the building, the infrastructure, the logistics of opening and keeping schools open, which to me, while are, you know, somewhat difficult, they're a lot more straightforward. I mean, if there is political will, and if there are the resources are allocated, doing the things that people have been saying is, is really not that difficult to do. You, you, can, you can do those measures. Where we have not had a very serious conversation and beyond even, it's like, it's beyond the point of conversation. Uh, We shouldn't be still, you know, we shouldn't be at the point that we're talking about it. We should have had a plan. But where we haven't been doing that is at the level of the curriculum, at the level of pedagogy, at the level of delivery. That hasn't been, it's not been planned. And it really hasn't gotten the kind of Coverage in the media, but also in terms of public discourse that it should. And I haven't seen the commitment or the movement on that from a ministry of education. A ministry of education, you know, the core function is to deliver a, a framework for providing good education, good quality education for all. That is really the core function. Of course, it is to administer the system also and to to ensure the logistics and to make sure there's enough teachers and all. But really, the curriculum pedagogical part is part of that mandate. And we're not not seeing that. What is a more normal, well, what should be done in in, in adopting a crisis-sensitive, equity-focused approach? Um, which is what the kind of work that I've been doing in relation to my consultations for the G20 summits uh, for last year and this year. So G20 in Saudi Arabia and G20 in Italy this year um, is looking at a crisis sensitive planning approach, which is very strong on equity, which understand, which takes at its core principle that we should be sure to be providing the the, the most comprehensive th- uh Uh, education we can with a focus on the marginalized groups, knowing that those marginalized groups are are intersectional. It's intersectional. So it's not, you need to understand that a student might have multiple areas of of disadvantage or might have multiple vulnerabilities. There might be an economic vulnerability, there might be a health related vulnerability, there might be a vulnerability related to where they live. Because we do know that the that the the quick turn to virtual learning uh, is also dependent somewhat on the technological component, which is also dependent on access to having a good infrastructure, which even in Canada and in Ontario, lots of remote, rural, northern populations don't have the kinds of access that is required, right? So all of those things come into it. What can we do from from a curricular standpoint to try and recover or, or, or to be much more cognizant of the fact that there's been an interruption? Children entering grade four in September of 2021, in just a few weeks, have been interrupted since grade two, since grade two. And we have not made any substantive changes in our curriculum to take into consideration that that is the fact for every student starting in September 21, no matter what grade they're in. So what we should be doing is looking threefold. And I've said this many times, so I'm going to repeat. The first is you look across the entire cycle of education from JK to grade 12 in this province. And you look to see What part of the curriculum needs to be lengthened this year? What part of the curriculum needs to be moved into the following year? And what part of the curriculum from the previous year needs to be brought in to the current year? Because that, and you need to do that for every grade. And and we need to do that because the way that we have structured our education system rightly or wrongly, we can have a different conversation about whether or not we have structured our education systems correctly. But the way that we've structured them as they are is progressive linear. And what that means is every grade, the curriculum for every grade is linked to the previous. And if students have had significant disruptions, and they have been unable or they have missed out on significant parts of the curriculum in a previous year, it will affect their ability to perform or actually their ability to learn. It will affect their learning, their skills in the next year. And you don't just catch up like that. It requires students can, of course, develop the skills, but it requires intervention. It requires that we restructure our curriculum to make to take into account the fact that many, many students, all our students have lost out on, on that, on, on some of that learning. So we haven't done that. And when we don't do that, those gaps, they accumulate because education is a cumulative process. You don't just start in grade three. There's a reason why children start when they start. You need to... Under, you need to understand the sounds of the alphabet. Forever, for example, to be able to write out a word, right? So those kinds of questions are the kinds of things that we need to be looking at. Is is how do we do that? That has not been done. That would be the first point uh, that that should be done, and this is standard practice in emergency education. Um, planning and delivery. Now, PEI did that somewhat last year, uh, entering uh, September 2020. I'm not sure what the situation is now, but uh, they that, that province, I believe, was the only one that did that uh, somewhat last year. Uh, the second uh, part of the curriculum or curricular plan should be to boost core skills in every grade for every student. So core skills are usually seen as literacy and numeracy skills and it doesn't have to be rote learning. It could also be problem solving. It could be, you know, higher order thinking skills, which would come into that. But you need to boost them for every every grade. And that would mean instituting special programs alongside or, or you know, alongside the, the regular uh, programs that we are delivering in schools. And alongside that, Uh, introduce psychosocial skills and programming, psychosocial skill development and programming as standard. Include that in the curriculum. It should be in the health and wellness part of the curriculum. Um, Because really, uh, this cohort of students has gone through something which is not usual. And they're still going through something which is not usual. And we don't know, there's gonna be a varied effect. We already know that there's a varied effect of the pandemic on children's uh, livelihoods um, and on their abilities. So they need to be able to develop the coping skills in a way, and even be able to talk about the pandemic in a way that is more healthy, you know, all of that, that. That's the kind of thing you need. For for, for everyone. So, so So points one and two, that should be done standard across the board. Then point three is to have targeted special initiatives for the most vulnerable students who've already had existing vulnerabilities and who now have new vulnerable, new students that have new vulnerabilities or existing students that had vulnerabilities whose vulnerabilities have now increased as a result of the pandemic. That really requires targeted intervention, data on learning, but data on coping, data on mental health, you know, and those programs should really be targeted within schools, individual level, individual communities to really boost that part of the portfolio. So with those three things in place, um, I think, of course, mitigation is a lot more possible. I am not really seeing that uh, as across the board as a strategy. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that schools and school boards and individual teachers are not going to do what they can in terms of addressing some of those needs, but that is not a systems wide approach. A systems-wide approach requires a systems-wide response. And that really means that you need to have a concerted plan, which is at a level at least planned out to some level of of, of standard, you know, some some level of standard, and then which can then be adapted to suit the local context, suit the local environment, suit the local class. But without having that um, clear plan... Uh, It's very difficult. The other part of the story is in order to institute those changes, if individual schools and boards want to do that, they need to have the resources to do that. That comes from the ministry. The resources come from the ministry and actually the broad planning curricular framework of the kind that I've proposed to you also comes from the ministry. Schools and boards have autonomy but they have autonomy to function only in as much as they are as, as they have to function within the framework and the resources that they're given. So in our education budget for this year for 2120 uh, for for 2122 the financial accountability office which is an independent agency came out with a report in June to say that actually we are seeing an $800 million cut to the education budget this year. This goes against all of the global recommendations, uh, even by the World Bank, by UNESCO, by UNICEF, by the G20, and, and, and our brief, the brief that I'm leading, which is based on evidence and best practice, is recommending that we should be protecting, at the, at, at the very least, protecting education expenditure uh, but we should really be increasing it to to deal with the losses and 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 to actually deal with the fact that we do have to uh, be very cognizant of the harms that we're causing uh, children and young people and society. So we've seen an eight hundred million dollar cut. The other thing that we have also seen, which doesn't officially count as a cut, but I constitute it as a cut, is uh, roughly nine hundred odd million, close to a billion dollars of uh what we what is really an unconditional household cash transfer what that is is the 400 or 500 per child that any parent who has a a school-aged child is getting this year uh that amounts to almost a billion dollars that are that is being funneled out of our education budget uh now the problem with that is firstly it's not means tested and what we mean by that is it's not according to household income. So, you know, what what one would want to see is if you want to give a benefit like this to households, that you'd want to give lower income households a greater benefit, right? Because the idea is that they would be able to benefit from it more than a higher income household. But that's not been done. It's a flat rate across the board. The other part of it is that it's unconditional. Unconditional means there's no condition that that Um, amount of money has to be spent on education services. And you could say that education services are broadly defined. You could say it counts towards tuition, private tuition or tutoring, or it counts towards uh, activities, different kinds of activities, extracurricular activities. You could take a broad broad view or or buying equipment or upgrading internet or whatever it is. You take a very broad view of what that is. But in fact, that hasn't been done. So the fact that we haven't seen conditional, it's neither conditional nor education on on education expenditure, and neither is it means tested. And on top of it, it's just a billion dollars out of the budget. You know, to me, that's uh, almost a $1.8 billion cut to education that we're seeing this year. And you can imagine that in a class of, say, say, say 30 children, uh, that's $12,000 that that class could have had additional. Right. So so you want to kind of think about what that means in terms of resourcing a plan. It's not just what the plan should be. It's also how do we implement that plan without the resources
0: that are required? Right. Um, so I want to see if in your view, there are any positives have, have there been any ideas or projects born out of necessity during the pandemic that you'd like to see carried forward? Like, were there any positives, uh, as we were going through this real life experiment?
1: (laughs) That's a harder question to answer because my, my, because most of my, Recommendations really uh, do come from some kind of pol- uh, evidence base, and and what we're seeing right now is n- not that much in terms of localized responses, but there are some localized responses. For example, I'm aware of uh, tutoring programs that are being done, uh, you know, without like without charging. So you want to have these kinds of tutoring programs that are done for one-on-one interventions, like the kind, and those have been shown to help um, in terms of you know, um, providing the boosting of some of the core core skills. But I wouldn't want to say, okay, this should be scaled up but because you really need to look at the specific intervention. But we do know there are specific um, core skills programs. There are psychosocial programs more generally. There are programs that can help with that. But where I do see some positive, um, I would say some positive movements are on public discourse. So I do think that given the length of the school closures that we've seen here in Ontario, uh and we I have seen much more public discourse around education than we have had in the recent past. In the past, you know, in in other societies, edu- the discourse around education is a lot more prevalent. And that is something that we have not seen very much in Ontario. We have not seen that very much in Ontario. So I think one of the very positive movements is a lot more public discourse and civil engagement in education, not just by parents, of course by parents, but more broadly in society. There there has been uh, a realization of the importance of education systems as a core essential service. Because people have had to deal very personally with the outcomes when they are closed long term. What does that mean? What does it mean, for example, for labor participation, household labor participation? Um, we know that the the effect of uh, long term closures usually has a negative effect of women's labor participation uh, because of the domestic care burden, but also because in many households, uh, because of the way our economic market is set up. These again, these are institutional constraints that affect human behavior. It isn't that women's labor is intrinsically worth less than 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 men's labor. It's just the way that our labor market has historically been set up. Uh, women's labor has not gotten the same; has not been remunerated to the same extent. We know that there's been uh, a discrepancy in women's pay uh, when we compare to men's pay. So, in in households where there may in a traditional family setup, in a more uh, traditional family setup, where you have perhaps two parents of, of, of you know, a, a, a man and a woman, two parents of, of, of opposite genders, raising a family, if there is a situation where you have, uh, you know, two people working outside the home for remuneration, and one person is earning less than the other, and 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 because of domestic care or other responsibilities, it's it's untenable for them to continue working outside the home for for remuneration. Then usually the person who has the lesser income tends to be the one who has to who foregoes that income because an, on an economic cost benefit analysis, that's the that's usually the rationale. The way our labor market has set been set up means that. In, in that kind of a heterosexual part, domestic partnership, most likely it's going to be the woman who has lesser remuneration, most likely she will be the one who will uh, forego that employment opportunity, given the cost benefit analysis, and even more so when in a province like Ontario, childcare is so expensive. Again, if we compare to our neighboring province of Quebec that has instituted much more of a universal child care model almost 20 years ago now, right? Uh, you kind of see the differences in terms of what that means, right, for, for child care. So if you have more than one child at home, child care, how do, how do we do this? Even at sometimes one child in terms of looking at the income. So all of these have immediate effects on, 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 on households not only on their income, but then also on societal loss of of, of really talented people who can contribute to society in ways. We usually just think of it in economic terms of GDP, but you also have to think of it in terms of how different people can contribute to positive social outcomes. And we're seeing that with the pandemic, it is really having a negative negative effect on, on groups of people who can do that. Racialized communities, again, are having to really be more burdened with higher risk environments for work where they may not have the option to take sick leave or paid sick days when somebody tests positive or or may have may, may show symptoms. So how are we subsidizing those households? How are we dealing with the very real effects of what that means? If you institute a strong test trace isolate system, like I'm saying, within schools, or outside of schools, you also need to institute the social part of that, which is, if the outcome of the test trace is that you've been found to be a primary contact that means isolating that means oh that means I have to isolate for 10 days but I'm in a job that doesn't give me paid sick days so how do I do that so we have to have the social part of that as well none of this it sounds so far removed from education it sounds so what does that have to do with kids in school learning you know the the abc's and learning how to read and write but it does because it's part of A broader social system. Parents having to work in conditions that are non-supportive of the pandemic realities are going to affect the children, are going to affect the continuity of the education that they receive. And then on top of it, if we keep using schools as, as pandemic control measures, then you have a blanket wide shutdown, which has again This extended effect on households when schools are closed for 26 weeks. What does that mean for working parents that don't have flexibility to work from home? What does that mean?
0: Yeah, no, you are. Uh, shedding a lot of light on the inequities th- that this has that this has unsurfaced, right? Um, you've been so insightful. Um, you've really got me thinking, and I'm sure our listeners are now really going to question how things go forward. And um, thank you for sharing that. And now, because our listeners are from London and Middlesex County, I have to ask you, what do you think Lenin can be, and how can we get there together?
1: Well, I think you know the thing with London is we have inequities in 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 this community, very strong inequities going into the pandemic. There was a report that was released that showed very high levels of child poverty in 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 London. Uh, showed very uh, inequitable living circumstances. Um, Of course, if you're you're working for the university or the hospital system, this is a very different environment in terms of the socioeconomics of those families compared to other families in London, and it's visible. So I think we can't gloss over the fact that we do live, you know, that London is a a community in which there is quite a bit of income uh, inequality. Um, and house prices, uh, house prices have really changed and 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 increased over the last few years. Uh, as a result, sometimes of other you know interprovincial migration that's going on, because house prices everywhere have increased. So then, where where can people that have some mobility move? Okay, places where house prices are relatively lower. But then, when that happens, in 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 uh, a concentration, it actually drives up those prices, and sometimes the local residents who've been living there for much longer amounts of time are kind of priced out of their own home. On an extreme level, very much not London. In San Francisco, we saw that happen. Right, this is an extreme, an, an, a, a complete extreme. But but that can happen, where you know you end up in a in, in a situation where really the local residents are are priced out of their own communities, and that to me is 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 a real that's a real concern. It's a real concern in terms of the income inequalities that we're seeing across the board in 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 society. But when you look at London, that is a little bit of a micro, maybe not a microcosm, but it's it's a case study in 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 those existing. In inequalities and those and what that means in terms of going forward when we're thinking about pandemic recovery right in my mind communities that have high levels of of, of income inequality uh, and you know the tragedy that happened with the the family that
0: the, the muslim family yes the muslim family yes. that was
1: you know, I can't even speak about yeah. it because it's, you know. And now, of course, we're finding more and more uh, in our community writ large the conversation around residential schools and survivors, and mm-hmm. this hits our community. You know, these are these are these are macro issues. For sure. And and London is not immune to those issues. We're not immune. In my mind, even if we start with the level of, 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 of income inequality, a city like London where we it's documented, child poverty is high, income inequality is high. should be targeted should be a targeted it should be targeted for investment by the government, public, public investment. Um, it should be an area that's targeted for that. Because we, we, we know that that is an issue mm-hmm. in London. Um, and, and, you know, of course, the macro questions that we're talking about, racial inequities, inequities with our, you know, with Indigenous peoples, I, I, I don't want to use that pronoun, our, so I want to take that out. Indigenous peoples, it's, it's, it's a travesty. And actually, if anything... What we're finding out about residential schools and the survivors of residential schools, many of us have known for years. It's just that it has not gotten the political mobilization. This is not hidden. This was not a hidden. This was an overt policy. This was an education policy. Yeah, yeah. It is central to the way our education Our public education systems in Canada were designed with that policy in mind. This is a very central question for everyone to understand how political and cultural our education systems are. Mm -hmm. That they are the formal institutionalizations of collective values. That is what an education system is. We formally institutionalize our collective values through our education systems. So, when you enter a pandemic and education is not protected as an essential service, and certain communities have been historically marginalized and continue to be marginalized, it is not by chance. It is not by chance. It is a policy response. That is grounded in the way that we have structured our systems, mm-hmm. education systems, our social systems. And Ontario and London are not alone. No. The specifics of, so the specifics of who those people are that are marginalized, the groups and their histories are very specific and contextual to the time and space that we're speaking of. Yes. Yes but the underlying structure in terms of how systems are set up with values in mind, that is common to all systems. We we design the systems in a particular way. That part of it is common, but the specifics of who is excluded and how, and on what terms and who is included and who is included as a privileged insider and who who is excluded, in terms of you know destructive synergies of these exclusions, that is specific to the time and space and the education system we're in. So building forward, of course, we have some logistical issues, we have some curricular issues, but we cannot build our communities or our education systems without being very attuned to the values that we're institutionalizing when we do that.
0: Very well said. Um... Prachi, I can't thank you enough uh, for spending your time with us. I know you're very busy. You've been incredibly insightful. Um, I'm sure all of our listeners, just like myself, are uh, rethinking (laughs) and probably, uh, you know, how are we gonna challenge our governments going forward? And what are the questions that we should be asking? And what are the values, our values, that we need to be rethinking and looking at, right, for going forward? So thank you so much uh, for your time. Loved having you here on our show and uh, welcome you back anytime. And best of luck with your work.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd be happy to come back.
0: Thank you. All the best to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash whatlondoncanbe. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.